When I was a new believer in the early 70s, there was no activity on Sunday that was done that would be in conflict to the church. And when I first came as your pastor 25 years ago, at least if there was a gymnastic meet or something else, they waited until the afternoon until church was over. Doesn't matter anymore. Ball games, soccer games, football games, gymnastic meets. You hold it on any day you want because on Sunday, most people are off, so definitely hold it there. There's no regard for Christianity anymore in post-Christian America. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In the books of Jude and 2 Peter, we read that a time will come when there will be mockers going after their own ungodly lusts. Historically, we see that there have been periods in time that have been marked by similar mocking of the things of God. And we see that in our study today in Daniel chapter 5, in which King Belshazzar threw a feast and used the holy goblets that had been plundered from the Israelites to fill them with his wine. But as we read in Galatians 6, God is not mocked, and whatever a man sows, so also shall he reap. So it was with Belshazzar, who in the middle of his drunken state, literally sees the handwriting on the wall. As we rejoin Pastor Brogy, he looks at the drunken party being thrown by Belshazzar and addresses the issue of drinking among evangelicals. This king was so stupid. He was so unwise. He was unlike King Lemuel's mother who gave him sound advice in Proverbs 31. There she said, it is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink, lest they drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. And understand, strong drink does not refer to the distilled alcohols that come centuries after the Bible is completed. Some say they come in the 7th century. Most argue they come in the 16th century. One expert said, and I quote, the 16th century created it, the 17th century consolidated it, the 18th century popularized it. So when we're talking about strong drink in the Bible, we're not speaking of rum and whiskey and vodka and the things that came years later, centuries later. We're talking about naturally fermented beer and wine. And God said, don't use it. Why? Because it is addictive. The exception that God gives in Proverbs 31 is to the bitter, dying, despairing man. You can give it to him as a painkiller, much like you'd give morphine to a dying person as an act of mercy. Now, many times people have said to me, well, pastor, will drinking a beer send you to hell? Of course not. You can drink a beer. In fact, you can drink no alcohol your, all, your whole life and die and go straight to hell. But God teaches that if you drink wine, if you drink beer, you're unwise. You're stupid. Understand, this is not an issue of salvation. This is an issue of obedience. This is not an issue of whether or not you go to heaven justification. It's an issue of sanctification. It's an issue of spiritual growth. And it's really an issue of your own personal testimony. It's an issue of whether you're going to cause another brother to stumble. It's an issue of whether you're going to glorify God in the day that we live in. It's an issue of how wise you are. And really, it's an issue of how satisfied you are. Whether or not the living water of Jesus Christ is so able to so deeply satisfy your soul that you don't need a drink. 
You'd say, Pastor, I don't get drunk, I just like a drink. Well, I'm glad you don't get drunk because drunkenness is evil. But when are you drunk? When you're buzzed? You know, human law, it's all over the billboards lately. Buzz driving is drunk driving. I don't want to see how close I can get to sin without sinning. Our goal as believers ought to be how far we can get away from sin. And our standards certainly ought to be higher than than the world's standards. Now, that may sound old-fashioned to you. And you may think I'm just some ignorant evangelical. And you're welcome to think that. Though I went through a four-year master's program and a three-year doctoral program, I've done my work. I read the Bible in the original languages. I was just speaking to a Hebrew rabbi who's coming here in just a few weeks on a Wednesday night. You don't want to miss him, December the 2nd. And he reminded me that they always mix the wine with water. And that Orthodox Jews to this day continually do that. Listen, I want to tell you from experience, because I know the Reformed faith is on top, and I'm thankful for many of my Reformed brothers. But most of them are teaching that it's okay to drink. It's okay to have a glass of wine. It's okay to have a beer. And they are doing a great disservice to young evangelical Christians. And honestly, I have never met a Reformed pastor or any pastor of any stripe who has any power on their life who drink. None. And I don't know pastors that God is using in a mighty way. Look, our Reformed brothers are not leading the charge in terms of bringing people into the kingdom. Less than 5% of all the missionaries in the world today come from the Reformed faith. We would do wise. Dad, you would be wise to be a model to, your, to the men in your home, to the women in your home, to be a different kind of person. So here's a man who drank wine, Belshazzar, back here in the fifth chapter, and he drinks, he drinks it from God's holy vessels. Let's begin now in verse 3. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, And the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. What a foolish mistake. These vessels that 65 years earlier Nebuchadnezzar had brought from Jerusalem to Babylon. And by the way, he's referred to here as his father throughout the text. But it's actually his grandfather. Understand that in both Hebrew and Aramaic, there is no word for grandfather. It's the same word. And so context determines And everyone knows, both secular critics as well as evangelical scholars, that Nebuchadnezzar is the grandfather. No one debates that or even makes a point out of it. But it's helpful for you to know that there is no word for grandfather. And if you ever see it in an English translation, it's an interpretation. It's not a translation. In either case, he gives orders here in the banquet hall for those sacred holy vessels to be brought in so they can drink from it. This is a power play. He's using and abusing God's holy objects that were used in the temple. Now, to put it crassly, if uh, you go to uh, work tomorrow and you discover that your computer and your desk and your chair and all the things in your desk are out in the hallway, what do you conclude? What's the inference? The inference is not that your furniture is out, but you are out. 
And here in this man demeaning God's holy vessels, he was demeaning the holy God. That's the point of the text. He's not only a drunken slob, he is a profane slob who has no fear of the living God. He knew what had happened to his grandfather, as we will see in what follows, but he ignores it. He understood that the God of Israel had converted his grandfather, but he is mocking the God of Israel. He is basically saying, let's see what your God can do, O Israel, as he takes these objects. Now you say, how do you know that? How, how do you know he's really challenging the God of Israel? Because of what unfolds. Fast forward down to verse, oh, go to verse 21, if you will. Verse 21, Daniel describes how Nebuchadnezzar's heart had become proud and lifted up, how he lived like an animal, and we read here, he was also driven away from mankind, and his heart was made like that of beasts, and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind, and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. And then Daniel gives an interpretive word. Look at verse 23. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. That tells me plainly he knew. He knew all about the one true God of Israel and what he had done to his grandfather and how his grandfather ended up humbling himself. And so by taking these vessels from the temple, he's thumbing his nose at the God of Israel. Look at verse 23. It's really Romans 1 lived out. No praise, no thanks. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and you have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand, but the God in whose hand are your life, breath, and all your ways you have not glorified. So back here in verse 4, they drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. That's incredibly stupid. Yet our society is not all that much different. We too as Americans are mocking holy things. Like never before in our media, in our music, in our printed page, on our websites, people are mocking God. Repeatedly they use His name in vain. They make fun of His pastors. They make fun of born-again Christians. In the Lord's day, well, that's become a thing of the past. When I was a new believer in the early 70s, there was no activity on Sunday that was done that would be in conflict to the church. And when I first came as your pastor 25 years ago, at least if there was a gymnastic meet or something else, they waited until the afternoon until church was over. Doesn't matter anymore. Ball games, soccer games, football games, gymnastic meets. You hold it on any day you want because on Sunday, most people are off, so definitely hold it there. There's no regard for Christianity anymore in post-Christian America. And many of God's standards are being laughed at and mocked. People are making fun on television and the movies of what God calls holy. It's no longer sacred sex. It is now safe sex. And what is to be sacred between a man and a woman in covenant marriage is now a profane thing. And beyond that, 
there's a total perversion and reversal with gay marriage. Look, if people come here and they're living together, I'm glad they're here. I'm glad when gay people come here. Occasionally they come and they tell me they're homosexual. I'm glad they've come. Some have been saved and converted. I've married a few. Only God knows who they are and I know who they are and you don't know who they are, so don't ask me who they are because they don't want you to know who they are. I'm glad for anyone who comes. But don't ask me to baptize you. Don't ask to become a member of Community Bible Church if you're profaning the living God. That's what this man was doing. He drank out of God's holy vessels. It would be like having the Lord's Supper and emptying out the grape juice and filling it with scotch and drinking a toast to the devil. No different. And this man doesn't really calculate the cost. He thinks he can pull this off. But sometimes God directly intervenes in human history to send a message. God doesn't burn down every Sodomite city. He did it just once. So you would know how he feels about the sin of sodomy. And God sometimes does something once so that we will learn a lesson forever. And so this man is basically saying, Hebrew God, stop me if you can because my gods are greater. And so he throws a great feast, and we see not only the foolishness that he exhibits, we see the fear that he experiences. Look now, if you will, at verse 5. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Now, the commentators, the liberals, the critics say he was hallucinating. Or some say the words were there all the time. No, this happened exactly as God said it happened. The handwriting grabbed this man. It changed him. And so to this day, we have the expression, the handwriting on the wall, the title of this morning's sermon. Now, it's interesting that God doesn't use the same method with Belshazzar that he did with his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, a very private thing. What took place with this hand writing on the wall was a very public thing. It was there for everyone to see. Why? Because while Belshazzar led in the folly, others followed. It's very clear in the text that his nobles and his wives participated with him. Verse 4 says, they, they drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver. Now, don't miss the drama here in verse 6. Then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints were went slack and his knees began knocking together. He's scared spitless. His face turns ashen. His thoughts within terrify him. And this guy who felt so strong earlier, his hip joints go slack. Uh, the Hebrew literally reads, the knots of his loins were loosed. It's a Hebrew idiom used to this day in Israel of someone who's lost control of his bladder. That's the thought. Here's the point. All the energy was drained out of this man, and his knees are literally knocking. This is one of five common expressions we use to this day, found again here in this chapter. So no doubt, he was sobered up immediately. Now let's ask a question. When he sees the handwriting on the wall, why does he interpret it the way he does? Why doesn't he see it maybe as a sign of blessing? that they were going to defeat the Medes and the Persians, and this was an answer from his gods. Why does he see the sign so negatively? Because he interprets it through his conscience. 
Just like Adam and Eve, when they hear God walking in the cool of the day, what do they do? They are fearful. They hide. Why? Because they interpret the event according to their conscience. When Herod beheads John the Baptist, and then later he hears of the mighty ministry of Jesus, he, through his conscience, interprets it to mean John the Baptist is raised from the dead because he's guilty. When a police officer pulls you over and the blue lights are on, do you think, well, maybe he's going to ask for a donation to the local police ball? No, that's not what you think. You know, you've been speeding, and so there's a little fear, and the heart begins to beat fast. Why? Because you're interpreting it through your conscience. Some people just have a knock on the door, and they are frightened because they interpret it in light of their conscience. That's what Belshazzar is doing. And so he does what many people do when they are desperate. They turn to religion. Look at verse 7. The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. These guys are losers. We've already seen their track record. They're just like all false prophets. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. He obviously had not learned much from Nebuchadnezzar's experience. Their work in chapter 2 is a disaster. They repeat that disaster all over again in chapter 4, and they're going to bat a thousand on this night. Now, please notice, in his desperation, he makes three promises. First, any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me will be clothed with purple. That's the royal color, a very expensive garment. It was a rank of royalty, usually only what kings wore. Second, he will have a necklace of gold around his neck. That's a mark of a person who's being highly honored. Not only is he given a rank of royalty, but he'll be given a mark of great honor. And third, he will have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. By the way, this promise coincides with what secular history denied for 200 years, that the prophet Daniel was a fake because there was no king called Belshazzar. But there was. There was his daddy, there was Belshazzar, and this man is going to be third ruler in the kingdom. He's going to be given that honor. Now notice what happens after they hear the king's challenge. Then all the king's wise men came in but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. They couldn't read it. Why? Because it's spiritual nature. And spiritual things belong to spiritual people. The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot discern them because they're spiritually appraised. And so we read in verse 9, Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler and his nobles were perplexed. Now that's interesting. We're told in verse 6 that he was pale, he was alarmed. Now we're told his face grew even paler, and he was greatly alarmed. With all these experts there, they were unable to help him. It's like the man who goes to the psychiatrist, he comes out of the appointment, he says to his wife, I didn't know I had so many problems. You know, these guys are phonies. They're not, they're not for real. And this king's life is going down fast. And it's really the product of decisions he has made. Galatians says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows that he will reap. And really, most of the problems we experience in this life are problems that we create. 
Most of the counseling a good pastor or counselor does who's a believer is they're just taking them to the Word of God and showing them where they deviated from Scripture because that's where the vast majority of all our problems come from simply disobeying what God has said. And so it's very crystal clear here in the next scene as we move from the ignorance and the spiritual bankruptcy of these so-called wise men that God is going to use his servant Daniel. So beyond the king's decadence, there's the king's revelation. The king's revelation, if you're taking notes. The queen mother comes in. We know she's not the queen proper because we've already noted in verse 2 that his wives were already present. This woman comes in after uh, the writing appears. She's the daughter of King Nebuchadnezzar. She's the wife of Nabonidus. This is this guy's mother. This is Belshazzar's mother. And the context draws that out as well. Number one, she has firsthand experience of King Nebuchadnezzar. She's been around for a while. And so the historical record that is given to us here revolves around her prior knowledge that she has. So she comes in, and of course at this point, under this king's rule, Daniel doesn't have the same high position that he had had. Um, And again, when you read this, it speaks of Belshazzar's father. And in verse 22, it speaks of Belshazzar as Nebuchadnezzar's son. And again, that's because there's no word for grandfather or grandson in Hebrew or in this Aramaic portion. Now notice uh, the context draws that out. Look first at the advice of the queen mother. We read in verse 10, the queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom a spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems, which tells me a lot about Daniel. We only have a portion of what he did for Nebuchadnezzar. He was very much involved. All these things were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. By the way, that's a wonderful testimony. Here's this old man in his mid to late 80s, And of course, this woman is not a believer, and so she's using pagan terminology to describe something supernatural, that the spirit of the holy gods is at work in this man. But he's in the twilight years of his life, but that's his reputation. Wouldn't that be a great thing? You know, some people get old, and they get old and grumpy. I mean, they complain about everything, and it's really sad. Look, when I'm an old man, you say you're already an old man. Well, when I'm an older, older man, I want to be characterized as someone who is filled with the Spirit. Daniel had, notice, an extraordinary spirit of knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, the explanation of enigmas. You know what an enigma is, a difficult concept or a phrase, something that's difficult to explain. And he had the ability to untangle hard thoughts. It says here, She mentions the solving of difficult problems. The Hebrew text literally reads the solving of knotty problems. 
He has a way of untangling what some would call the untangable, if there is such a word, okay? And so, of course, God can do the same today. He can do the same through you. If you're a wise person, how do you get wisdom? When you obey what you know, you grow. When your mind is renewed with Holy Scripture and you begin to apply that Scripture, then you become wise like Daniel. Now, Daniel, sometime after Nebuchadnezzar, again, had been demoted. And there may come a time when this world won't want you around. For whatever reason, they didn't want Daniel around. They didn't want Daniel around when they were having their drunken party. And when the world, if you're truly a Spirit-filled, born-again believer... They don't want you around. Why? Because they make you, you make them feel uncomfortable. You reflect to them God's holy standard. But many times, many times I've learned in my life that when a crisis comes into their life, then they come looking for you because they know that somehow you are in touch with the living God. More and more I meet people, very rarely does a week go by when I don't meet some dear visitor who comes because there's a crisis going on in their home or in their life. And they say to me, Pastor, I've got so much. I remember a man in a, a Bible study that I had in Dallas, Texas when I was the director of executive ministries. He made over a million dollars a year. He said, Pastor, I have so much, but I can't make my life work. And there are so many people like that. How do I make my marriage healthy? How do I get my kids to love the living God? How do we deal? You saw it just a couple weeks ago. It was on the news in Savannah. There's a murder there just about every day now. And if someone's not murdered, three or four people are shot. And they gather all the community leaders together. How are we going to stop all this violence? The world doesn't know. And so the king heeds the advice of the queen mother, which brings us to the answer of Daniel. The answer of Daniel, beginning now in verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. It must have been something else to see this grand old man come walking into the banquet hall that night. And what a difference between his lifestyle and the party crowd that was present. And that same difference ought to be between your lifestyle and the world's. Let's read it. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel? who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah. Now I've heard about you, that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom has been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me, that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me. But they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. He's using both flattery and he's using money to get Daniel to do what he wants him to do. He's basically saying, Daniel, I'll give you more power than you've ever had. I'll give you wealth like you've never seen before. To listen again to today's message, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and asking for program DAN6, entitled The Handwriting on the Wall. Our phone number again is 877-787-7478. 
Tomorrow, Dr. Berge concludes his look at Daniel's interpretation to Belshazzar and the application we can take from this frightening warning on the wall as we search the scriptures. 